the party is definitely not over at all because on the rare occasions, I actually go out in the real world and talk with people outside of the internet. Most of them, you know, don't even know this world of Twitter or online content exists. I think almost every industry, I mean, there's probably a few, it just won't really apply to, but almost every industry will basically, well, they'll see content become a major source of customer acquisition. Welcome to The Four Podcast. I'm Chris Powers, and on this show, I talk to some of the most fascinating minds in business and discuss important topics in the worlds of real estate, entrepreneurship, investing, and more. To learn more, visit thefortpod.com. That's thefortpod.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Relay Human Cloud, a leading provider of staff hosting and related services to simplify and de-risk the process of adding remote overseas workers. Stay tuned to the end of this episode and you'll be able to hear more about Relay Human Cloud, what they do and how they've helped businesses like mine, Fort Capital. We're offering an exclusive promo code for the fans of this show, so make sure to stick around for that to receive $500 off per employee per year. I just pinch myself when I think about what Fort Capital's done over the last few years. We're based in Fort Worth, Texas, and we have a track record that has already transacted on over $2 billion in assets throughout Texas, Tennessee, and Florida. Our team is currently looking to acquire Class B industrial deals between $15 and $100 million throughout Texas, Florida, Tennessee, and now North Carolina and South Carolina. To learn more about Fort Capital, visit www.fortcapitallp.com. Charlie, welcome to the show. I'm excited about today. Yeah, me too. Thanks so much for having me. Charlie and I met, I actually met his, his parody self before I met him. And so I think it'd be fun to kind of start with April of 2020 and how you were bored and decided to start a parody account on Twitter that we all have come to love and and the story that's happened since. It's pretty cool. Yeah, so it was actually April 12th, 2020, about three weeks or a month into COVID. Every single restaurant, you know, everything I usually do is shut down. So I had a lot more free time on my hands. I had always been a big fan of reading financial news on Twitter, but I never really participated. And I thought, you know, I maybe I could do this. And I thought it would just be a fun little side thing. I spun up a character, came up with the John W. Rich. Originally, it was John W. Rich, and then in parentheses, wealthy. And it, initially, I got the account pretty big just by commenting something arrogant on, on people's tweets, and they would get pissed off and say, <laughs> and say, who needs to call themselves wealthy? You're probably not actually wealthy if you have to <laughs> label yourself. But yeah, it actually, within the first month or so, it got about 5,000 followers. And I just thought it would be a fun side thing for a little bit, but basically it, it, it blew up right away. And through the summer of 2020, just kind of trolled some people, especially like Nikola Motors guy, who's now conv- you know, a convicted fraudster, had some fun messing with him on Twitter and got blocked by him and a few others. The country singer, John Rich. He got pretty pissed at me for, you know, always saying, oh, I'm the real John Rich. So he blocked me and, and actually Nicola Motors, they sent me a cease and desist because I experimented with a merchandise shop and just had a sticker that said short NKLA, you know, just their ticker symbol, not their name or logo or anything. And they sent me a cease and desist saying, Hey, you know, don't do that. So that, but yeah, so this 2020 was kind of just for fun. I really, it wasn't a business. It was just having fun. Kind of all my spare time was spent just messing around on Twitter, seeing how many followers I could get. What did you learn about, what have you learned about being a parody account? Like as it relates to just normal life, like how have you learned that people react to it? Why do people get such a kick out of it? Like what has being another character taught you? Well, it's it's definitely better to be a parody account on Twitter versus any other type of account. Because, you know, number one, there's no rules. You don't really have to be consistent about your viewpoints. You can, you know, you can have one viewpoint because it's popular. And then two weeks later, you can totally switch it. And just because you're just joking around, no one really calls you out on it. Unlike 
a real person, you've got to be pretty consistent in what you talk about and what you say. I think, you know, another fun part is, well, you can just have fun. You don't have to worry about, you know, oh, is my boss or is a client going to see this and get mad? You can just go for the maximum amount of fun. And I think it's much easier to build, well, at least for me, like, it was much, much easier to build a great network through the parody account. Because even when I was first building it up, some of the people that would follow me were were pretty incredible people that I never would have been able to meet or talk to or been in the same universe as, if not for the parody account, at least initially. And so I, it was kind of cool seeing a couple like public company CEOs follow me and interact with me. Or I think there's four billionaires that follow me now, maybe five. Well, so like Michael Dell follows me. Like, obviously he would not have cared what I had to say on my personal account or any of my personal social media before I started the parody account. So I think it's a lot more fun. And at least for me, I got a lot more. I was able to build much, a much greater network than I would have just with my own personal account. There's John, John W. Rich has a, has a wife on Twitter. He has, I think, kids on Twitter. I, I, don't, I don't know. Do you own all the family members or did other people then take on to adding their own you know, a parody account to the family? No, I think, well, people don't believe me usually, but I, I've never created any of those accounts. So someone once put together a Twitter list and at, at, I think at the peak, there was about 83 accounts on that list. Everything from, I think the most, <laughs> the most random ones were like John Rich's kids, Wendy's menu, John W. Rich's high school wrestling coach, you know, John W. Rich's divorce lawyer, there was like five or six ex-wives, you know, there's a bunch of random ones. I, I do know some of them, multiple people would create, or one person would create multiple accounts, or, you know, someone would just constantly change theirs up to become the most ridiculous idea they could think of. But yeah, I think there's about 83 of those accounts at, at the peak. I don't own any of them. I actually do work kind of closely with a few of them. I've hired some of them to help me with writing. I know some of them personally now. It's funny, there's a few of them have kind of grown to become their own, like the John W. Rich Kid account. He has like 50 or 60,000 followers. Um, and I'm sure there's plenty of people that follow him who don't even know what my account is because his kind of stands on its own now as <laughs> its own character. And there's a couple others that have, you know, several thousand followers. So it's, it's been interesting. There's a, a couple different group chats too of just the rich family members. Yeah. So it's been, been kind of cool to see people get involved like that. We'll talk about it in a bit, how that's parlayed itself into a business that you now run. But before we do that, is there a way to actually monetize John W. Rich and turn him into a business? Or does he remain just like a funnel for other things that you might do? I think a full-time business probably, maybe it's on the cusp of that or could be. Okay, in 2021, I would have said, oh yeah, absolutely. And that's when there was all sorts of money being thrown around. You know, I'd get messages from people like, hey, can you retweet this crypto project? We'll send you $1,000 in our made-up cryptocurrency. And I knew accounts even much smaller than mine that were making twenty or thirty thousand dollars a month just basically retweeting or advertising crypto projects. Most of that money's gone now. I don't know if John Rich can really be its own business. The one thing I realized after the first year or so running the account is there's not a ton of money just in parody itself. People like to laugh at it. There's some great, you know, very valuable followers. But whenever I try to advertise something, a lot of people would assume it's a joke. So they just assume everything I'm posting is, you know, just to be made fun of is not really a serious, is not really serious anything. So I think it's tougher to, to make money advertising with a parody. It probably is pretty low on like the cost, on like the, the amount of money you can make based on the number of followers you have. I think there's definitely some large parody accounts that have made it a pretty good business, either advertising or just in general promoting other accounts. So, you know, maybe it could, maybe not really a great business just because most people are there for laughs and they don't, they're not going to take anything I advertise very seriously. Well, I want to thank you because a lot of the joy I got during COVID came from that account. 
No. <laughs> yeah, thank you. No, it's fun just to, to screw around on there and just mess with people or just tweet out crazy stuff and have, I know it's pretty crazy just writing some crazy thought about, oh, my wife left me and having 50,000 people read it and respond. It's funny. And I would ask you, how did you select the photo for who John became? Because I actually think that's one of the funniest parts is looking at the man that's actually making the tweet or that you think is making the tweets. It's a hilarious photo. Did you just scroll the internet for who might fit that character? Is that a actual family member or who is that? It's kind of a mashup of a couple different people. So yeah, it's not not one person. Yeah, so I, I basically just combined a couple people that had the right look. I don't even remember who exactly <laughs> I put into that, but I basically used Face Face App and combined a couple people to come up with my character that that looked just right. And then I, I think the added effect that people like is the that the photo is so up close, kind of like a a person who doesn't quite know how to use Twitter might upload. Yeah. So yeah, I, I knew I was just going for like a, I think I searched something like old chairman guy and then grabbed a couple images that kind of looked right and then combined them. So I wasn't using one person's image. Makes sense. All right. So you build this parody up, which for anybody listening that has not followed John W. Rich, you should. It's it's just a funny parody account and obviously became really popular. But let's talk about how that kind of segued into I'm, I from everything I understand, what you're doing full-time now, it's your job. Is that fair or you have another job? No, this is my, my full-time thing. Okay, so um, what are you doing? This, yeah, so in 2021, I started an agency. I basically realized, this comes back to your question about, you know, is the John Rich account a business? In a way, yes, because I, I was able to start a content agency off of it. I realized that there was all sorts of people that followed me that either wanted help with content or wanted to hire someone who was good at Twitter. And the John Rich account has been a goldmine in that sense in that I always have potential clients who want to hire me. They already know I know what I'm doing with Twitter. So it's an easy sell. So yeah, in 2021, I started playing around with that as a side thing for a little bit. And then it kind of took off kind of at the end of the year, at the beginning of last year, when I got more serious about doing it full time. And I realized it was it was a really lucrative business, because I knew what I was doing with Twitter. I was already connected with all sorts of people that wanted to build up their personal brand or promote their business, or just have a big following on Twitter. So yeah, it's been a, a really awesome business. I've been doing it full time for about, I guess, not even really probably a year and a half or so I've been doing it full-time. And so when, I, when I've been talking to you the last few days, when I say, what do you do for work? You're like, I'm, I'm on Twitter all day, which I find fascinating. What, what does a client engagement look like? What are people, you kind of said they're coming to you to build their personal brand or their business. But if I came to you and just said, hey, you know, I'm at 76,000 followers, but now I want to go to 250 and I don't really want to do much anymore. What would happen? How would we work together? Yeah, so it's all my clients are real people. Just to clarify, I think a lot of people think I run other parody accounts. I don't run any others just because I might, you know, I might run out of ideas if I had to run a bunch of other parody accounts. And then also there's, like I said, a lot of people like the parody accounts, but there's not really much money in it. So I wouldn't really be able to charge much for, for running another parody account. So all of my clients are entrepreneurs or business owners, investors. And so the, the biggest thing I usually ask and the biggest thing that really dictates the engagement is what are you trying to get out of Twitter? I think that's important for people to define because the way you write on Twitter will dictate the types of people that come to your audience. So to give you an example, you know, if you want to, if you wanted to sell a course, like how to be a real estate investor, you, I would approach it very differently than if you wanted to attract accredited investors with millions of dollars to invest because you write very differently for those two types of audiences. I think that's a mistake a lot of people make on Twitter is they try to be everything to everyone. And if you do that, you're you're not really going to have a core audience and you'll bore the people or you'll bore a lot of the people by talking about things that aren't relevant to them. So, you know, if you're trying to sell a course, you would probably maybe simplify your content a bit. You would talk about how's here, here's how I got started in real estate. 
here's how I, you know, maybe even talk about some of the definitions of, of basic terms to kind of educate your audience. That's probably not the audience that you want. You probably want the more sophisticated types. So obviously you'd write differently for those types of people. So basically when I ask my clients, you know, what are you trying to get out of Twitter? There's usually a few different answers. It's either they want clients for their own business. Maybe they offer a service of their own. They offer some sort of consulting. Other people want to reach investors. So they have a company or they do deals and they want to reach investors. Some people just want to have a presence. They don't necessarily have like a specific goal, but they want to network. You know, they want to meet other important people or they want to meet all sorts of different types of people and don't really have a specific goal in mind with in terms of monetization. Those are typically the three different goals I have. So I, I approach every client engagement differently just based on that. So I want to know what the target audience is and then what they're trying to get out of that audience. And then from there, I, I basically need to absorb the my client's voice. So I need to know you know, what are they all about? What are their kind of main beliefs? What's their experience? What's their background? I need to know a lot about, I mean, I need to know a lot about them and their business so that I can write in a way that's number one, interesting to the audience, but also number two, specific, or at least is kind of matches what the client is actually like in real life. Because like, if I I usually have a sheet of like how I how I would rate my clients in different areas. So like, you know, I want to kind of match what they're actually like. So if someone is a bit more like relaxed or subdued, then I probably wouldn't write tweets that are super, super braggadocious or something like that. So I kind of want to match like what what my client is actually like in real life so that I can write something that I mean, basically, I want them to have an audience that's actually gonna be valuable to them. If you're like me, you like to wake up and get your daily dose of reading. Uh, for me, a lot of that has to do with commercial real estate because of the industry that we're in at Fort Capital. And the news is important. But if you're a busy real estate professional like me, you don't have time to skim through the dozens of dry and ad-filled media outlets each day. That's why I read CRE Daily, a free email newsletter that cuts through the clutter and delivers concise, witty commentary on the latest trends and transactions in commercial real estate. I discovered CRE Daily a few months ago, and it's an email I actually look forward to getting each morning. If you're a real estate professional, you owe it to yourself to try it out and stay on top of what's happening in the industry in only five minutes. To give their free daily newsletter a try, visit CREdaily.com. That's CREdaily.com. How, what's the cadence? Is it different for everybody? Or are you tweeting every day or certain topics, certain weeks? How, how does the content actually come out? Yeah, it can vary. For most of them, it's once a week. We'll write up the whole batch of con- like an entire batch for one week. You know, it depends on the client because some people, it doesn't... I mean, the, the clients that are definitely, or that I can do that for aren't, their, their content doesn't have to be super timely. It doesn't have to be about whatever's in the news. So, you know, with like with the John Rich account, obviously I can't work ahead too much because I'm basically going to be joking about whatever the big news story in, in the markets is that day. But for most of my clients, they, theirs isn't very timely. So I do it once a week. I'll sit down for a few hours, write up a bunch of content. Almost all my client engagements are pretty collaborative. So I'm not just writing it and sending it out. It's more like I'm working fairly closely with them. So my clients will send me ideas. They'll say, hey, here's a couple ideas for topics or here's you know, something I did this week that might be interesting. Usually I need other sources to pull from. So it's great if my... I mean, it's very hard to work with a client who doesn't have something out there that I can look into. Like... You know, if they've never appeared on a podcast, if they've never written a newsletter or blog post, if they've never done a speaking engagement that's recorded, I usually can't do a whole lot for them unless I get on the phone and talk with them for a while. So typically I'm, I'm writing up the batch of content based on, you know, things they've sent me based on maybe my own research and then I send it to them. And then there's a feedback period, maybe the first couple times that I do that for a client, it's a lot more, they'll have a lot more comments. And, you know, I, I welcome that from my clients because I really want to learn 
you know, what they would say, what they wouldn't say. And then hopefully after a couple of weeks, I really know their style. And after the first few weeks, you know, everything I send them, like 99% of it, they're using it because it's, it fits, it fits what they, or it fits their voice. And they're typically all like, do they also get on and kind of do their own thing? Or is there kind of an agreement that this is your time on there and they, or or they're free to kind of get on and do whatever they want as you're doing your work? Yeah, no, I, I definitely encourage my clients to also get on there and uh, do basically whatever they want. I mean, maybe there's been a few times where I, a client says something kind of crazy on there and I'll, it's pretty rare, but I'll say, oh, you know, I probably wouldn't tweet that, but (laughs) for the most part. I encourage them to get on there, tweet other stuff, do replies. Because the nice thing with, with Twitter, you don't really get penalized for tweeting too often. Yeah, with with like LinkedIn or with other platforms, if you post it more than once a day, even if it's good stuff, people probably just are going to get annoyed with you. But with Twitter, everything is, you know, if, if you tweet something, it's basically within six hours, it's forgotten. It's, it's gone. So there's no harm really in being all over the place. And that's, those are the periods where I realized I would gain the most followers is when I was tweeting really frequently. I mean, just for a couple of reasons, then I'd be more likely to have one or two tweets that, that really hit, but then also more people are just seeing me. If I was replying, that's another way I, probably one of the best ways to grow a small account is to not just tweet yourself, but get in the replies of bigger accounts that have similar audiences. So I did that like when I was very first starting the John Rich account, like I would basically reply to every Jim Cramer tweet. And after a while, I was the top comment on most of those. So I, it's hard to measure, but I gained a ton of my followers in the beginning by being the top comment on, on, you know, a Jim Cramer post or something like that. And, and then getting a couple thousand followers each week from that. If somebody asked you, I get asked this all the time, like, what's the value of Twitter? Like, why do you spend time on it? I'm sure you get asked that. Like, how do you respond to people? What is the value? Why should maybe a lurker or somebody that's on the sidelines really take it seriously? I mean, it's just incredible. The, the caliber of people that are on there. I think the business world is becoming a lot more casual and Twitter has been the perfect place to benefit from that. I think, you know, what I would read Twitter. Well, I've probably been reading business stuff on Twitter for like 10 years. And, you know, back 10 years ago, the only people that were on there in business were, you know, people in San Francisco that were super into tech startups. And for a long time, that was kind of the only aspect where Twitter was a serious place of business discussion. But the last few years, I think because business is becoming more casual, people are kind of sick of how stuffy and arrogant (laughs) LinkedIn can be. So Twitter has been the perfect place to document what you're doing with your business and, you know, do it in a casual way. So the amount of high caliber, high achieving people that are on Twitter is pretty incredible. And even, and it's kind of split between the people that have big, you know, there's a lot of people that are well, well accomplished and they have huge profiles on Twitter, but then pretty often I would get a DM from someone who has like 50 followers and it turns out, you know, their CEO of of a hundred million dollar company or something like that. So it's pretty crazy who's on there reading. And I think you could build, I mean, I've seen it. I've seen hundreds of people who have built really great businesses, basically just from Twitter. They built up an audience. They documented what they do for their business. They either raised a massive amount of money based on that, or they made millions of dollars in sales. Or maybe on a smaller scale, I've seen tons of people build up an audience of just 10 or so, 10,000 people or so, and build a pretty good business just from people on Twitter who, who pay them for their services. Yeah. I wanted to dive into that. What are some of the types of businesses? So one of the things we talked about on our pre-call, we said would be interesting is just, there's a lot of people that have gotten on Twitter and created these multi-million dollar businesses. So maybe you could go a little deeper into like from 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 followers zero to making a million dollar business, like what has happened and maybe frame it for somebody that's thinking like, man, I might give this a shot. Yeah. I mean, definitely the hardest part is getting from zero to maybe 500 or so followers. I think the, the main thing you need is some sort of interesting story. Why Why would people care? Why would people care about your story? Why would they start following you? 
So the examples I would give of people who have built a good business on Twitter, they basically started with some really interesting story. They talked about maybe the first business they built and they attracted an initial audience because people were interested in that. I think on Twitter, people really like specific examples. So if you talk about something specific you've accomplished and give like a a play-by-play on how it happened, you can build a pretty good audience just from that. I think there's a, there's a ton of different ways to, 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 to build a business on Twitter. I give that example of people with only a few thousand followers who make tons of money from Twitter. Typically, those are people that have some service that they sell for thousands of dollars a month. So like for my business, I, I only have 6,000 or so followers on my personal account, but that's been worth several hundred thousand dollars in revenue of clients. And, you know, the reason that works is because I only needed, you know, I probably have gotten 20 or so clients from, from my personal account on Twitter. And, you know, if they're, if they're each paying several thousand dollars a month, you know, that's a few hundred thousand dollars and it only took 20 people. And the reason that that worked is I basically documented exactly what I did. I said, you know, here's how I built up my John Rich account to a hundred and whatever thought and it's 195,000 now, but I started writing about it when it was like at 150,000. So I, you know, number one, gain credibility. Like I know what I'm doing. And number two is just an interesting story. So a lot of people started following me. I got more eyeballs on it. So I think, yeah, like I said, there's a few different ways to build a business on Twitter. But I think the best way is just document what you do. And if it's an interesting story, if you know what you're talking about, if you have unique insights, you're going to gain somewhat of a following. You're going to have people that have money to spend, or you're going to attract people that need the service that you provide, basically. On the other side, there's people that have built multi, multi-million dollar businesses from Twitter. Usually that's people with a couple hundred thousand followers. I mean, that's a, there's, there's a few people who have done that, that, you know, they just do it on a larger scale. They document what they do, but they raise money for their business. They sell an info product. They sell a you know, they have a free newsletter where they sell advertising and then they have a premium newsletter where their super fans pay 20 bucks a month. There's a lot of ways to do it. Depends what you want to do. And I think one, one misconception is that you have to like, you have to brag on Twitter. I don't think you really have to do that. I think you really don't have to. I think a lot of people are turned off by some of the accounts that have a million followers that are constantly posting kind of clickbait stuff or posting about like get rich quick schemes. You really don't have to do that. If you want to build up just an audience of 10,000 people, you really all you have to do is just have an interesting story, have interesting insights or actionable insights, and you'll attract the right the right kind of audience. And I think it's important to keep in mind who you're writing for. Like don't try and write for everyone. You know, you don't need to be a super celebrity with a million followers. Having 5,000 of the right followers can build you a a, a huge business. What do you think about, and we kind of talked about this, there's some days I get on, I'm like, I've already said everything I know, or maybe repurposing, like, do good accounts kind of say the same thing over like 10 different ways, and and that's okay to do? Yeah, no, I I think if you want to grow, if you want to keep growing your audience, for sure, I remind clients that, I mean, I, I definitely do that with with my clients, like, if you have a good story, you should tell it at least every couple months. I mean, at minimum, a lot of your followers didn't see it the first time. You know, maybe if you gained followers, if you gained 10,000 followers in the last six months or whatever, then those people have not seen your original story, maybe. Or there's just different people that are active at a certain time. Like if I tweet on one specific day, a ton of my followers just aren't going to be checking Twitter that day. But maybe a few weeks later, they will be checking. Yeah, I do think there's a fine balance there because yes, some counts accounts are maybe a little too repetitive. But at the same time, you do have to keep in mind, I have to keep this in mind for myself that not all of my audience is checking Twitter <laughs> all day, every day. Yeah, I am because it's my actual job. But I have to keep in mind that a, a large portion of my audience checks Twitter like once or twice a day, like they're spending a few minutes a day on Twitter. So yeah, they probably missed a big tweet I had because they just don't see every single tweet on their timeline. Like I might, because I'm on there all the time and have to absorb all the content that's on Twitter, basically. So yeah, I would say it's, it's, 
that's usually a good way to grow too, is if, is if you do have a good story, you know, you should tell it more than once. Yeah, I guess try not to annoy your core audience, like your super followers that are there constantly. Don't post it so often that you annoy those people. But yeah, I would say that's, that's usually pretty necessary, especially over a few months. Like you're, you're not really repeating yourself. You're, you know, or at least you're not repeating yourself in an annoying way. Because I do think even a couple months later, enough people won't have seen your original post about it. Are there any other things about Twitter that you've learned, whether it be, I don't know, advanced search or just like hacks or things that maybe like a lot of people don't know about if they're just kind of a beginner user of Twitter that have you found interesting or maybe some attachments to Twitter, you know, other apps that kind of engage with Twitter that make it a better experience? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, yeah, personally, I just, I don't really use, I mean, I tried using TweetDeck a bit. I didn't really, I basically just use the desktop version of Twitter. It's funny. I, I guess I would say <laughs> Twitter is just a funny app because, you know, as we know, it, it totally changes all the time. The image cropping breaks, the, you know, messages break all the time. So I would say there's not a lot of ways to hack it necessarily because it, it just is a not, it's an app that, that breaks a lot, you know, before Elon bought it and after. One thing that's interesting is I, I think people don't know on desktop, you can schedule tweets. So like a lot of people use a scheduler. For some reason, you can't do this on mobile. You can't schedule a tweet, but you can on desktop. It's not, it doesn't really work that well, though. <laughs> so actually, I do end up using schedulers because for some reason, the Twitter one, you open it and it'll default to posting five days in advance. So you always have to like reset when you're doing it. I would say the advanced search actually does work really well for... So one thing I would say is one thing I tell people who are trying to build up an account is basically find like 10 or 20 accounts that are similar to... Well, that have a similar audience to what you want to build and try to have them be varied in the amount of followers. So if you're a real estate... If you want to be a real estate investing account, like you know, look at the the couple of really big players, you know, like Nick Huber or Moses Kagan or you, and then maybe some that are like 30 or 40,000 and then some smaller ones that are just now building their audience. Make a list of 10 or 20 of those. Number one, create a Twitter list, especially now because Twitter isn't showing the people you follow in your feed. So make sure you have a list of the people that you want to build a similar audience to. Look at what they're posting every single day. And one thing that is helpful in the advanced search is if you search someone's username and then you do from colon and then their username, that'll give you the tweets that are just from them instead of anyone mentioning them or any of their replies. And then you can use, you can also use advanced search to do minimum amount of likes. So I think the code is like parentheses min underscore faves colon and then however many. So maybe a thousand favorites. And then you can look through that person's viral tweets, basically. That's a pretty good template for showing you what works well in your, in, within your audience. One thing I'd be careful of, though, is you definitely don't want to just copy someone else just for the sake of it, because I've seen many accounts do that. Like, yeah, you can build up your account by copying others. But are you really building that great of an audience then? Are you really building an audience that is actually valuable to you? Probably not if, if all your thoughts are just copied from someone else. I think the copying on Twitter is, is, is more rampant than people even think. Because I think, I mean, we all know that memes get stolen all the time. I don't really think that's a big deal. But there are a ton of large accounts that basically farm Twitter for all the tweets that that did pretty well, but not super viral. And then they basically take those and tweet them themselves a day later. So you can build a pretty good audience basically looking at what other people tweet and then copying it. I would, I would definitely not recommend that. But I do think it's good to, to look at people who have similar audiences that, to what you want to build and use them as kind of a template for what, what does well. That could include the format, that could include the type of content they talk about. It could include like the level of, of specificity that they talk about, like it, within real estate. You know, are, are the big accounts talking specifically about the deals they've done? 
or are they talking about high-level strategy? I think those are good things to look into. Speaking of Elon buying it, do you agree that Twitter's gotten worse since he bought it? And do you hold out hope that we'll get it back to where we started? Or like, how do you think about it? Because it is, from my perspective, man, it's like a different world. And I don't see anybody. One thing I didn't realize, I guess you don't realize it while you're in it, was how important it was to show up to Twitter and this community and kind of see your buddies and the same usual faces every day. And then they're all gone. And there's a lot of FOMO. I've created a list just to keep in touch. It's a retweet list. But like from somebody that's built a business where your job is to help people build an audience, how do you think about the current environment on Twitter and like what's your hope for it as we move forward? Yeah, I mean, there's probably no going back. I think, I mean, Twitter, it seems like Twitter is a thing that changes every few months and is like the things that worked a year ago, those are just gone. Like, it's, you know, never going to go back to the way it was a year ago or two years ago for a variety of reasons. Number one, the algorithm changes. Number two, I think when something works on Twitter, then you have this rush of a thousand people that just basically copy it until it gets super old and people get sick of it. But to answer the question about Elon Musk buying it, I think the interesting thing, people would ask me that, especially right when he bought it. For the first couple months, I didn't really notice much different, except the one thing that was super annoying is that every single piece of content on Twitter was about Elon Musk. So that got a little old for a while. That <laughs> The only thing people talked about on Twitter was Elon buying Twitter. Yeah, I think, but over the last few weeks, it's definitely, I've seen a lot of people complaining about the algorithm that oh, it doesn't show the people I actually follow. I've noticed that too. It kind of just shows you like, you know, the these accounts that I don't follow who post about politics or who post about the vaccine or post about, you know, something about the Federal Reserve is robbing, is, you know, robbing whoever of money. They'll probably fix that. I bet, I bet, because I it seems like, you know, something like this happens every week where everyone gets pissed that, this thing on Twitter broke and a bunch of people tweeted Elon and then eventually he says, oh, looking into it. And yeah, it gets changed. And I guess in two weeks, there'll probably be some other issue that people are complaining about. I think, I don't think there's another platform. I mean, so people ask me like, oh, should I, you know, start writing somewhere else? I still think Twitter is pretty unrivaled in the, the way you can build a good audience and the way you can distribute content. I, I just haven't really found anything else like that. Cause I think at first there was all those other apps that people would talk about like truth social or like, I mean, there's like five of them, but they're basically all political, basically all political content. So I didn't find any of those useful for, for business cases. And I just haven't really found any other way. I mean, I, I would advise if you do have a personal brand, you probably should have other other places you distribute content. I mean, people always talk about the fact that you should own your audience. Obviously, that's ideal. Like if you have a newsletter or a website that you own, that you know your your biggest fans can follow you there, and you don't necessarily have to worry about Twitter, you know, shadow banning you or whatever. And speaking of that, I think the biggest change has been Twitter Blue. You know, if you don't have Twitter Blue, you're basically not getting reach or engagement. So. I don't know if it's good or bad for Twitter. I think we'll have to wait a while to see how that plays out. But I've definitely noticed that like with when that change came about, the clients that had that didn't immediately get Twitter blue, like their engagement just and their reach just fell way, way off. And you could see an immediate change. I don't know if it's good or bad. And I think I'm still the one. The interesting part about the blue check mark, it's been weird to get used to the fact that if you see someone with a blue check, I used to think, oh, you know, someone important. And now I click into it and it's like, oh, they have 20 followers and they you know, created their account yesterday. So that's, I'm still getting used to that. But the blue check doesn't really mean much anymore. Yeah, but I think it's pretty safe to say that, at least in my opinion, you kind of already echoed it. Twitter's pretty unrivaled right now still as it relates to folks that want to get a message out direct to their audience without it being, you know, watered down or filtered through the media. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, exactly. I think the one other is LinkedIn. I mean, that's that's way more I guess that's usually longer form content. It's just kind of it's different. 
so I think Twitter is is just so great for like getting all your different thoughts out there. With LinkedIn, it feels like you can post once a day and it has to be a lot more complicated and it has to be more of a well-researched piece. I think Twitter is by far the best place for like quick thoughts, for people, for, for people to have conversations about things. So I really haven't felt a need to like, you know, get off Twitter or tell people, oh, you should be doing this somewhere else instead. I just, I, I really haven't seen anything that rivals Twitter. Do you have any comment on why you think people enjoy reading long threads? Like, it's almost like you could read the same message as just like a full paper page. But when you see it broken up into all the little tweets, there's there's something about going through the content that way that makes it, I don't know if the word's better, just probably more engaging. Do you know why that is? Yeah, I think it's just the psychology of <laughs> of not having a big block of text. It's funny because this, I think before threads were popular, the style of writing that was super popular on Facebook or LinkedIn for a while was like having every sentence be its own line. And I think like in 2015 or so, a lot of the online gurus would popularize that where they would write, they'd basically write a story, but like every thought was just a completely new paragraph. And there's something about it that makes you read, you know, that one sentence, one thought, it's not very complicated. I guess that's why threads do well. At the same time, though, it's funny. I think now that you can see the view count, this is hilarious to me that a lot of the threads that do really well, like look at the first tweet and the number of views and then like one of the middle ones, like the number of views is maybe like one fiftieth of the first one. So what's hilarious is that so many people will quote tweet or retweet or, you know, comment, oh, what a great thread. But like, obviously they did not read the entire thing. They read like the first one or two, kind of got the gist of it, maybe skip down to the end to see what the call to action was. So I, I don't necessarily think people even read them all the time. Like I think with Twitter, we just have such short attention spans that a lot of those threads that are like 20 tweets long, I don't even think a lot of people end up reading them, but they do interact with the thread or they'll scroll through and kind of skim it and read like five of the tweets. Yeah, and, and now you can see that with the view counts. It's pretty hilarious sometimes that like the number of retweets on the first one will be higher than the view count on one of the middle tweets. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I got onto Twitter after the, I think in 2015, no, it was really 2016. I didn't do much, but a lot of it was because that's when Trump had just gotten elected. And for me, it was just like, wow, we just had a president get elected. And at the time it was like, he could have arguably you could arguably make the assumption that he got elected because of his Twitter presence, or at least that was like a meaningful tool in his tool chest. And now you've kind of seen Elon has taken over Twitter. And I think you could sit here and say it's created billions, if not hundreds of billions of dollars worth of value for him. Do you think Trump coming back onto Twitter, not for the politics and everything, but in general, when somebody asked me, it's like, I think it'd be good if you're a creator or you're putting... Oh, content, because it brings more people to Twitter. Yeah, that actually, that's the main positive thing I saw with, with Elon Musk buying Twitter is just way more users. People were taking an interest. So yeah, I could see that. I think that's an interesting shift from 2016 is like important stuff would actually happen on Twitter first. Like before that, yeah, Twitter would be one of the best places to get news, but it was always pulling news from somewhere else. It's kind of interesting over the last few years is like actually a lot of those big things just happened directly on Twitter with, you know, Trump tweeting something out, like tweeting out a presidential order or something before he actually, you know, released an official statement or with Elon Musk announcing he's going to do something on Twitter before telling anyone else. That's kind of the interesting thing over the last few years that all these really powerful people are on Twitter. <laughs> What's hilarious, too, is is you realize I realize like a lot of these, you know, billionaires or politicians, they're basically like us. They're getting on in pointless arguments on Twitter, yeah. <laughs> just like us, just, you know, just because they're petty or because they want to argue online. So I think that shift has been, has been huge for Twitter. I don't really know the, the user numbers, you know, pre 2016 versus now. I mean, I'm sure it's, it's way more users, but 
I think that's another reason people have just taken it more seriously or gotten on Twitter because it's a place where important business people or important politicians put their thoughts out first before they before they put it out somewhere else. If you could say, you know, threads were maybe the popular thing over the last couple of years, and that's kind of been devoured by everybody. It's they still work. I mean, there's still some great threads, but is there anything that from your view, since you're so kind of in it, is there any emerging trends that you're seeing that might not be obvious to everybody else or anything that kind of excites you for your clients as you think about 2023, like what we should expect? Yeah, I think, well, (laughs) kind of the opposite to your question would be the fact that everyone is talking about AI content, but I haven't really seen anyone actually effectively use that yet. It's funny, all the threads about here's why AI is going to you know disrupt content, but I don't think anyone's actually really doing that on Twitter yet. Maybe they are. Maybe they wouldn't say if they were using AI to write their content. But yeah, I think at least the threads that are kind of summarizing, well, people joke that you know a lot of threads just summarize Wikipedia articles. That's kind of dying out. That's kind of lost its, its power because... You know, a lot of people figured out that engagement hack that you just summarize a Wikipedia article and teach your audience something. I think one thing that's that's going to do really well this year is people documenting specifically how they either started or ran a business. The, the people that I've seen over the last couple months that have really grown quickly at least in the you know business startup investing space are people that share specific stories i think like with the the trend of the wikipedia threads dying out people want more specificity they don't want they're kind of tiring of like the general like truisms that people post so i think if you want to do well right now a really good opportunity is is posting very specifically about what you did to accomplish something or how you built a business, or how you did a deal, or how you made a hundred thousand dollars doing something. I think that's something that's 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 really working. It's funny. I think we might be reaching a point where the shit posting is has kind of reached its peak. I think for the last two years, a lot of probably two years ago was the point where people would actually use their real faces and names and basically create shit posts on Twitter. I think that's maybe reaching a point of saturation at this point where everyone is posting these kind of ironic shit posts about how they, I think one great one is from a couple months ago when Alex Cohen tweeted about, well, it was actually a LinkedIn post, but it, it, it went viral on Twitter as well as where he talked about how he, you know, to save the company money when he travels for work as he cooks raw chicken in the coffee pot at a hotel room <laughs> that he fills it with hot water and then lets it cook. <laughs> and, and, you know, like that kind of stuff. I mean, that's done really well. That was, you know, that's like a timeless classic, but I do think there's a bunch of people that are now trying to basically copy that. Maybe it's reaching a point where it's a little too saturated to, to build a, a good audience by doing that alone. If you don't already have an existing audience. Yeah, I would say, actual specific stories people really like that that'll basically always do well another trend i'm seeing with business twitter is you know if if 2021 everyone is talking about web3 now they're talking about businesses that actually make money i would say you know people like cody sanchez were, were ahead of the game on that and that's how that's one reason she built a huge audience is she talked about businesses that actually make money that are boring but aren't some web3 machine learning algorithm that, you know, burns a million dollars a month. So I think that's a huge trend or people are now thinking, okay, a lot of the investing stuff over the last couple of years actually was kind of foolish. How can I actually make real money running a real business? So I think that that space is going to get a lot bigger this year of, of people who talk about running real businesses, about running cash flowing businesses that don't necessarily mean need to raise a billion dollars in VC money. Yeah, I think I think that's probably the biggest trend we'll see like on on the business side of Twitter. When people are shit posting and I guess we can define shit posting as like 
basically just making a mockery of something and using it to get attention, but something that everybody can kind of relate to. Do you think that followers or folks that view that separate the message from the person? And then I want to ask the same question to you because people know who you are, but they also know that you own John W. Rich. Like, do you think anybody ever associate the two of y'all, even though like when I think of you as like, I think of you as somebody totally separate than this parody account. But then some days I'm like, but that's Charlie too. He's got that in him. How do you think users receive that information, especially when it's shitposting tied to somebody that they can identify with? Yeah, I think, I think for, for my situation, I, I think people are, it's easy to separate because it is two separate accounts. I don't really, I definitely don't post the same type of content. It's weird too, because when I, when I chat with people who have some sort of anonymous account, I, even if I know them in real life, I don't think of them as their real life person if I'm chatting with their character. So like, I'll just think I'm chatting with like whatever stupid picture they use for their parody account if I'm chatting with them there, even though I know them. So I think it's easy to separate it if it's two separate accounts. Like, yeah, I think a lot of people just think of John Rich as like an actual guy, even though he's obviously fictional. I guess the the trickier part of that is, is if you use your personal account, like your real name, your real face to shitpost, I think one mistake you could make there is if you do that too often and then people don't know if you're joking when you post something serious. I think some accounts have done that where, you know, if you can definitely, the stuff you post, you know, the stuff you tweet will become your brand. So if, if you're always posting crazy shit posts, you know, being sarcastic, eventually that becomes your brand. And then if you try to post something serious, people will be confused. I think that's going back to our, our first discussion about why John Rich himself doesn't really make money is if, if I'm constantly just posting jokes on there, if I finally post something serious, people are just confused because it's not what they expect. And I think any account, whether it's parody or a real person, your audience comes to expect a certain type of content from you. So that's why I advise clients to like, you know, for the most part, pick, pick your niche. Obviously you can post about other things, but try and, you know, you're not trying to be you're not trying to look like some genius who's an expert in 10 different fields. Like pick your main topic. And that's, that's what you're going to become known for. Like, you know, if you started posting on your account about the future of crypto, like even if it's good information or something, most of your audience would be like, wait, what? Did he get hacked? Did he sell his account or something? I'm confused. So even if it is good content, you'll just, it's, it'll be very bad for your account to post something like that because it's not what you're, what, not what you're about. See, I would say, you know, if it's your personal brand, pick pretty carefully, like what you're going to make yourself known for. Obviously, you can post about other things, but, and some people use the strategy of being controversial on purpose to pull, to pull new audience members in. And then their next tweet will be, you know, here's my course or here's my, here's what I'm actually known for. And that can work. I think you just have to pick carefully, like what you're consistently tweeting about will kind of become what you're known for. Nobody has done it that better than probably sweaty startup. Yeah. <laughs> and his, I mean, anybody listening that knows him, one, he's like a really kind, thoughtful guy. He's, he's got an online persona, but it's so calculated. It's like, how do I get, it's like enrage, engage, get people to the table yeah. and then feed them with a bunch of actually really quality stuff. And Nick has, yeah. Nick has done a phenomenal job, not only creating an audience, but monetizing creating a lot of value yeah no he's he's amazing with that because yeah he has his core like story about starting a moving business that turned into self-storage and then yeah like what he told me is he tries to post controversial things to bring in a bunch of new audience members and then maybe 10 percent of those people stick around for the real estate investing stuff and he's i don't know what he's at close to three hundred thousand followers or maybe more but yeah he's one of one of the best at that. And I think when I met him in person, I was kind of surprised that he was just very normal. He wasn't really, <laughs> he's super normal. He wasn't, yeah, he wasn't giving any crazy controversial opinions when I actually talked to him in person. He was just pretty, pretty normal laid back guy. Yeah. He's not really like that in real life. Like he's not trying to <laughs> post the most controversial or he's not trying to always be controversial when you actually know him. 
Yeah, I think what's funny is it's controversial online, but you know, in a small group setting offline, it's probably not that controversial. But as we know, there's there's nuance gets lost on Twitter and you know, tweeting something and saying something are totally two different ways of communicating the message that can be received totally differently. Yeah, his classic one is the his his workers in the Philippines and you know, he posts about how he hires them and most of his business followers see and like, oh great, like, you know, sounds good. And then it gets picked up by a broader section of Twitter later. And then, and then Reddit. The people that are pissed at him come in. So the, the, that's always fun to see. And he he posts that like every two weeks. Yep. <laughs> to, <laughs> to basically repeat, you know, what happened the first time when he got millions of impressions and a bunch of angry replies. To bring it the the conversation kind of to the last section, I just wanted to talk a little bit about you you built this agency. We've kind of done a great job of laying out how Twitter works, how it can change your life, why it's valuable. You built something and then you actually sold it to a group called Workweek that's emerged. Yeah. What happened there and like what is Workweek doing and, and what role do you play in that? Yeah, so I, I sold my agency to Workweek in end of June last year. For the most part, I've just kind of stayed doing what I've always been doing, working with my clients. Now I just do it under their umbrella. They wanted to sell my service to a lot of like their advertising clients. So I basically help them, you know, establish how they can do that. They've been hiring writers and and kind of selling the service to clients that I wouldn't I wouldn't have been able to reach without them. And yeah, so Workweek is a is a company that started at the end of last year. It's been pretty phenomenal growth thanks to, you know, Adam Ryan and Becca Sherman who are the co-founders and they I mean, it's it's grown like crazy in about a year and four months. And I think they're, I think we're at about like 60 or 70 employees. But yeah, I, I basically just do exactly what I've been doing before, you know, running John Rich, creating content, creating content for the clients I work closely with. But yeah, they've just helped me, you know, take some of the operational load off my plate. And if we had to, on, on, to kind of bring it home, you know, you hear about the creator economy, the creator economy, the creator economy. And, and and some people are creators and some people are Elon Musk that just uses social media to amplify everything else. I don't know if you would call him a creator, but for all those folks, like if I was to say, where does this leave us? If you had to make a prediction is like, how does this evolve over the next five years? Have you thought through that? Like, there's some people that might think, man, I'm just too late to the party. And you might be sitting here saying the party hasn't even begun. But like, how does this continue to develop and unfold in your opinion? I mean, yeah, the, the party is definitely not over at all. Because when I, on the rare occasions, I actually go out in the real world and talk with people outside of the internet. Most of them, you know, don't even know this world of Twitter or online content exists. I think almost every industry, I mean, there's probably a few, it just won't really apply to, but almost every industry will basically, well, they'll see content become a major source of customer acquisition. There's tons of industries that just really don't do it, or there's only a very small percentage of the players that, that you know, have a good Twitter presence. I think over the next five or 10 years, way more companies are going to be using online content to acquire customers, to acquire investors, it's still, if you have some sort of unique story or you have a cool business you've started, I mean, there's so much room for you to build an audience on Twitter or on LinkedIn or, you know, on YouTube or TikTok or Instagram. I think there's going to be massive opportunities for that. I think, I mean, even now I, I'll tell people what I do and how I acquire customers. And to so many, to so many business people, it seems like such a novelty. They're like, oh, you you know, you did that on Twitter, like people will find you on Twitter and then, you know, hand you several thousand dollars. It seems like such a novelty. And I think in a few years, maybe it'll take a while, but that's going to be the norm for a lot of businesses that, you know, you'll meet someone on Twitter, you'll find them through Twitter and, and you'll pay them for their services. And I, I, I think that's going to be much more the norm compared to, to how it is now. I think so much a lot of aspects of business are moving to basically asynchronous communication where 
no longer are you, you're not, you know, cold calling to find a customer. Obviously that still works, but I think more and more we'll see people acquire customers through their content. And, you know, there's a couple, there's a couple people I know of that have built pretty large businesses, not even doing meetings with clients. So I, the one guy that I would tell people to check out is Brett from Design Joy, and he's built like a $2 million design agency. And I don't know the current numbers. I don't think he has full-time employees. I mean, you can check out his feed. I haven't really read his story in a couple months, but I don't think he has full-time employees. He just has contractors and he's grown it to 2 million or so basically because he's, you know, he tells clients when they sign up, we're not going to have meetings. We're, I forget exactly how he communicates if it's just over chat, but he basically says, yeah, we're not doing meetings. Like you just submit requests over text and you know, I'll do them and that's it. We're not going to have an hour long meeting. So I think that kind of model is going to be much more common where people read something online, they hire someone, Maybe they don't even get on a phone call. I've had tons of clients that sign up with just after a, a email conversation without actually talking on the phone or talking on a Zoom meeting. So I think there is so much more room for acquiring customers by writing out good content, writing out content about what you do and attracting the right audience members who will want, either want to pay for your services or you know join your company or invest in you. So definitely not not too late to the party no matter what industry you're in charlie thank you very much for today this was awesome i learned a lot and you got me even more jacked up to get back on twitter yeah awesome to hear it yeah thank you so much for having me Jason, as we sat back years ago and were envisioning where Fort was going to go, we realized we needed to bring in a global workforce a remote workforce that could work with us. And a few of the reasons why were obviously cost, which I think is the first thing that comes to everybody's mind. But then when we talk about shifts, a 24-hour shift, and maybe you can go a little further there, and some of the other benefits that we've realized as we've gone on. And now we sit here today in 2022. At the time we first had this was maybe 10 employees. Now we're at 46. Mm -hmm. And as you think about the next chapter and how we're scaling, it's almost inconceivable that we would do it without Relay Human Cloud. So can you just talk a little bit more to how the shifts work at Fort and the productivity and some of the other benefits that we've learned about working with a, a global workforce? It's actually been pretty transformational from how we think about how we're going to not only get stuff done today, but how we're going to get stuff done in the future as we grow. And so... When you start going down that path of thinking about you're going to start working with people on the other side of the world, right? There's a lot of questions that come up. How are we going to do it? How are we going to train them? How are we going to, going to uh, manage them? Who's managing them? All those things come up. What we found with Relay Human Cloud was that all those thoughts had already been taken care of and that we could focus on what type of talent is there that can join our team? Does it fit our need? And once we saw that that all that thought and energy had already been put into the operational part of managing and running a team and the thing that we focus on here locally, then it was just a matter of finding the talent. And what I think that Relo Human Cloud has done really well is find a lot of great talent. And, you know, uh, these are people that are highly educated, that uh, can provide a ton of value to a company like ours that otherwise we can't find here. And obviously it's at a, a high uh, or a extreme cost savings compared to what we could find here. So what we started looking for was how could we supplement what we currently do with the team overseas? And it started off for us from an accounting perspective. We, we have a lot of these things that are repetitive, task-driven, that just never end. And we know that knew that our team was taking on a lot of work during the day, which was limiting our ability to take on new properties. And so we could either, we have a choice. We can hire another accountant or another staff accountant, or promote somebody and bring that person on. But we're really just trying to solve, at first, a repetitive task. So when we reached out to Relay Human Cloud, we discovered that not only could we solve that problem, we could get a very qualified person that could not only do that, help support on a lot of other things. And so it, very quickly, it turned into we're trying to solve some repetitive tasks to uh, bringing on more and more team members that were actually helping us grow our accounting department without having to bring on a lot of people here. 
And so that that just continued to grow. So since then, we've brought on additional assistance, but it started with accounting. The benefit of having a team working globally is that you get the benefit of around the clock and it never ends. And so because we have a uh, team here working on things, obviously the time runs out during the day, but there's things that are going to, they're going to come into work tomorrow and they're going to have to start doing that again. One of those things, is, and a good example is cash reconciliations of every bank account. At Ford Capital, we have 50 bank accounts and there's cash reconciliations that have to happen every day. Well, that was something that locally a team had to come into work and start working on every day. Well, that just means there's other things they can't start working on. What happened uh, immediately with our team at uh, Relay Human Cloud was that overnight they were processing all those. They were doing all that accounting work on the back end so that when our team showed up in the morning, they could start on more important tasks that were happening happening locally directly related to the property. Mm. And that, that allowed us to uh, create efficiencies. And so that's just one benefit. You, we can go through a, a, an entire list of things that we have discovered that overnight can be done to help increase the efficiency of the accounting team. That, that extends beyond the accounting team. It also extends to the property management team processing invoices. So uh, Fort Capital, we have millions of square feet of industrial space uh, across the country. And with that, you have a lot of invoicing that's happening at all times. You, you could name a million things, whether it's paying bills, contractors, tenants, whatever it is, there's a, a million invoices being, and that can all be processed in India overnight so that when our team comes in, they're not spending their day processing invoices, which yep. allows us to get to more uh, proactive accounting measures so that we're using our accounting team to actually push the company forward, not uh, keep up with what's coming at us. Got right. It. And so we found a ton of efficiencies um, by using or by having the 24-hour workday. So following that up, it was also important to us because that could have been done anywhere, but we wanted it happening under one roof with people that we knew, that we worked with daily, that were part of our team. And so as you think about these people that are halfway across the globe, it still doesn't seem like they're, ha it seems like they're in the next room over. Right. And, and that, that's a good point. And I think the, what, what's important to understand there is that this group of individuals that are working in India are working directly for our team. They are a part of our team. They're in our systems. Um, they communicate with our team every day. They are not just an extension of our team. They are a part of our team. And so it is much, much different than if you go hire a third party service out there in the world that you're asking to process invoices, who you're having to send uh, critical or uh, important data to that is or might be sensitive, right? Um, information. We actually have all that internal and this team is a part of that internal team. And so it, it's a it's a much different way to look at outsourcing than if you're just outsourcing it even here locally in America. There's a risk there that you're uh, sending your data to somewhere else. This is all happening internally. Whether you're a small business, medium-sized business, large business, and you're looking to expand your team and build a global workforce, go to RelayHumanCloud.com, use the promo code THEFORTPOD, that's THEFORTPOD, and they have been generous enough to offer $500 off for every employee that you hire per year. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com.